to 1 Peter chapter 3. Uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, we will uh, read um, verses 8 through uh, 12. Let me ask if uh, you're able, let's stand as we read God's Word together. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from seeking deceit. This is a quote from Psalm 34, which we just read a few minutes ago. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Uh, We pray, O Holy Spirit, that you would teach us. You have uh, written these words. You've recorded them. You've inspired them through uh, Peter and his pen. Uh, You have preserved them for us uh, nearly 2,000 years now. And we pray uh, it is your function. It's your job uh, within the Godhead to be at work in them and through them now. uh, To root out sin in our lives and to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. And we pray that you would do that even now. Uh, Through Christ we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. Peter's been addressing um, a variety of of different groups of people, different kinds of people. He's kind of been in this uh, section where uh, he's he's giving us instructions on how to live out the gospel, how to live uh, what I've been calling the cruciform life, the cross-shaped life, the life that is um, shaped by and to some extent shaped like the cross and and what does it mean that we as believers are called to live this cruciform life this cross-shaped life and you recall Peter's writing to believers he's writing to uh, Christians in in modern day Turkey and he gives you a list of those places back in verse 1 of of chapter 1 um the the places where it appears perhaps he went and and planted a church or some churches and um, had, had ministered there at some point, and now he's writing back uh, to them. Uh, and he's, he's writing to them on what it means to live the cross-shaped life in their world. He's written to citizens and, and how we live the gospel uh, under uh, civil authorities, civil magistrate. He's um, written to employees and how they serve their employer. Uh, he's written to marriages, to wives and to husbands. And he turns his attention today to an, another group, a new group. And it's entirely possible, I suppose, that you could have, have read up to this point and said, well, 
you know, I'm, I'm retired. I don't have a job. I don't have a boss. I don't have an employer. So that section doesn't apply to me. Or I'm single and, and not married. And so that section doesn't apply to me. There's, there's ways we might read up to this point and think, well, I, I, can, I can skip that because that's not about me. You, you do realize that all Scripture is God-breathed and all Scripture is profitable for us and we don't skip parts. But th- if you're thinking, well, but I'm not married and I'm not employed. I'm so, you know, these things don't really work. Well, th- this passage applies to everyone. This passage, Peter turns his attention. There's no way really for us to, to opt out here. He turns his attention to everybody. And he actually turns his attention to the church. He's including anyone who verse 12 calls righteous. That's believers. That's Christians. Not self-righteous, but righteous in Christ. Not righteous in themselves. Even as we uh, confessed just a few minutes ago in our confession of sin. These are people who are This passage is for people who are trusting in Christ and Him alone for their salvation and have His righteousness credited to their account. And it's the last group of people that He's addressing. That's that's why that finally is there. Um, This isn't one of those finalies where... You know, the, the preacher kind of says, and finally, and you kind of set your watch thinking, well, I know I've got at least 10 or 15 more minutes. This, is, this isn't the last point. This isn't the last thing he's going to say. This isn't the end of the letter. It's the last group of people uh, as a final group. And he turns his attention to the church. And he tells us in these verses that uh, instructs us in these verses, in these verses first, He instructs us to love those inside the church who aren't like you. Verse 8 is interesting because there's actually no verb. Okay, there's a verb in English. You'll look down and you go, well, it says says have. That's a verb. Have is a verb. There's not a verb in Greek. He literally just jumps into this, this series of adjectives, sort of, rapid fire machine gun got to get there quickly and he doesn't ever include a verb in the verse in the sentence that's not that's not terribly unusual in in greek or hebrew for that matter you can supply the verb it's it's fairly common but it's it carries with it a sense of of urgency, a sense of of trying to get to these adjectives to describe us as believers, to describe the church. And even without getting into the details of the words themselves, we learn something from the existence of words like unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, which, by the way, is Philadelphia. The fact that those words are written at all tells us that not everybody in the church is going to be exactly like me. We wouldn't need those words if we were all just clones of one another. We wouldn't need instruction on brotherly love and humility and care and sympathy 
if everybody in the church was exactly alike, those words would be meaningless. They'd be pointless. And so the very fact that we have instructions on being united in our minds, on being sympathetic, on showing brotherly love, the very fact that Peter writes those tells you not everybody's like you. And that's okay. Not only is it okay, but it's actually supposed to be the case. Now, we know this, right? We know this. We can look around the room and go, okay, men and women and old and young and tall and short and, and you know, Clemson fans and not smart people. We've got all kinds of people. Thank you for laughing when I... It's one of the things I appreciate about y'all. Is you, you'll just put up with my Clemson jokes. But we have, you know, all kinds of people and we know, okay, we're, we're clearly not all the same. And we know 1 Corinthians 12. We know where Paul talks about the, the fact that the church is a body and, and some people are eyeballs and some people are mouths and some people are pinky toes. What is the pinky toe even for? And some people are like parts you hope nobody ever sees, right? You know, I, I have body parts. I hope nobody ever, ever sees my liver. I, I don't care if anybody ever sees my pancreas. I, I would love to go through life and never have to be opened up like that. Some of us are parts that, that don't get seen. And, and we know that if our body, if we were all one big giant eyeball, we couldn't hear, we couldn't walk, we couldn't... We couldn't play in the snow. We could see it and appreciate it, but we couldn't play in it. Where's the fun in that? And so we know that the church is not just different. We're not, individual believers aren't just different from it, but we're supposed to be. That's why we need things like sympathy and brotherly love and humility and patience with each other. Of course, where the rubber meets the road is not, for us, is not really so much in the ethereal idea of, I know we're all different. I know that some people are ears and some people are fingers and some people are toes and we're all different parts of the body. And when we all operate doing what we're supposed to do, then the body operates normally. I, I get all that. And then somebody who joins the church votes for the guy you think is the wrong guy. And have a thoughtful, biblical, biblically grounded, they've, they've prayed, they've sought wisdom, they've sought guidance, and they voted for a guy. You think, how in the world can a Christian vote for that guy? Or they didn't vote for either guy. Or they didn't vote at all. Or they wrote somebody else in because they couldn't in good conscience vote for the guy you voted for. Or for the guy the other person voted for. That's when we need brotherly love. That's when we need humility. That's when we need sympathy and, and patience and unity of mind with each other. It's common enough in Christian circles to say, well, the only right Christian vote is person X. 
And we've quickly dismissed anybody that didn't vote for person X. We're different. And we're supposed to be different. And so Peter calls us to have unity of mind and sympathy and brotherly love and a tender heart and a humble mind. We're to seek single-mindedness. We're to to show sympathy for others, to be humble. And these instructions, these commands tell us that we're not all going to agree on every single issue. You know, this would probably be a decent time to sort of insert this notion. We'll have people curious about joining Grace Covenant and ask questions and they're like, yeah, okay, we're fine and and we really like the people and stuff, but this whole... Infant baptism stuff. This covenant, I'm not on board with that. To which we reply, okay. You don't have to believe that to be a member at Grace Covenant. You have to trust in Christ and Him alone for your salvation to join Grace Covenant. After that, we're fine. This is who we are. It doesn't have to be who you are. Our goal isn't to be like everyone else around us or to make everyone else around us like me. Our goal is to seek unity around and in Christ. And so with that as our goal, Peter can tell us, have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart. Of course, these all all tell you to care more for other people than you do for yourself. Every single one of these commands, every single one of these adjectives describes someone who is willing to care more about the needs and wants of other people than himself or herself. He'll, he'll put others first. He'll seek the good of his brothers and sisters in Christ, even to his own neglect, if necessary. Paul writes, it's it's familiar to you in Philippians 2. That passage, you know, that passage sort of runs around in your head where Paul tells us to consider others as better than ourselves or in Romans 12, when he tells us to weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice. Incidentally, have you ever noticed how much easier it is to show sympathy for someone than to rejoice with them? When a brother or sister walks through darkness and difficulty, we can hurt with them and we can hurt for them. And we can bear that burden with them. But if something good happens to them, if they get that promotion that you think you should have gotten, if they suddenly get a a windfall, uh, money lands in their lap, if they get an award, if they get some honor, if they get, that's actually more difficult. It's easier to weep at a funeral than to rejoice at a wedding. At a wedding, you're thinking more about the snacks you're going to get after the service is over. 
it's actually easier for us to to hurt with those who hurt than it is to actually rejoice with those who rejoice. That's the real sign that we put the needs of others ahead of ourselves. Our selfishness shows itself more clearly when good happens to a brother or sister in Christ. These words, these adjectives want us to grow in our love for others who aren't like us. Literally learning to live the cruciform life. Learning literally to live the life that reflects the cross. Because that's exactly what Jesus did. Is He took the lower place so that we might be exalted. He took the lower seat so that we might be honored. These adjectives want us to be willing to to seek the good of others, even if unseen, without public credit for it. A desire to show love and honor to those around us. Jesus wasn't born in Bethlehem for His good. Jesus didn't suffer on the cross for His good. He didn't need that. We did. And He was willing to put our needs first and obey the Father even to the point of death that we might be blessed. That we might be redeemed. Maybe this is too simple. Maybe this is too real. But this is why we wear masks. My understanding is, and I'm not even really sure to be honest with you, my understanding is they help the other person more than they help you. Well, then give me two. Then let's wear extras. Let's carry some. We wear masks because we care about the needs of others. This passage tells us, instructs us to love those inside the church who aren't like you. But it also tells us to love those outside the church who don't like you. Notice how he picks up in verse 9. Don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. At least we can say our brothers and sisters in Christ get the same instruction in verse 8 that we do. So if verse 8 tells me to love my brother and sister to be humble, to seek unity of mind and sympathy in a tender heart. It's also telling them that. And so I can have some comfort, encouragement in knowing that we're all getting that exact same command. And that just as I'm being told to put your needs ahead of my own, you're being told to put other people's needs ahead of your own. We're all getting the same instruction. That's not true for people outside the church. They have the opposite notion. They have the opposite idea. We should expect, and Peter's already said this. Jesus tells us this in the Gospels. Peter's warned us of the reality of, at least the possibility of suffering on account of Christ. Jesus 
warned his disciples that, look, Jesus was mistreated. How much more would we be mistreated? He tells us to expect that kind of suffering. And what will we do? How will we respond when we are treated with evil, when we are reviled? And verse 9 warns because the natural man wants revenge. The natural man is an ego Montoya who lives his life in the revenge business in the Princess Bride. His father was killed unjustly and unfairly by someone who was supposed to be buying a sword from his and his father then killed him with it, I think. And so Inigo Montoya lived his life seeking revenge on the person that unjustly, unfairly killed his father. The whole concept of dueling is grounded in the notion that you treat me wrong, I have a responsibility to defend my honor and get you back. The natural man wants revenge. Even our kids learn from the earliest age, and they may even be joking, but I'll get you back for this. Parents, we don't teach them those that sentence. But they somehow know to say, I'll get you back for this. The natural man wants to revile those who revile and repay evil with more evil. But that's not what we as believers are called to do. We don't seek revenge for being mistreated. We don't revile those who revile us. We don't repay evil for evil. Christians aren't in the revenge business. But notice it's not just enough to not get somebody back. Because Peter actually goes further than that. Don't just withhold revenge. Instead, apply blessing. Naturally, you want to pay them back for this. Instead, bless them. The, the, if you can, if you can steal from Gru and, and despicable me for a second, Gru fusses at his neighbor. Your dog's leaving little bombs in my yard. You know, he can't do that if he's dead. I kid. No, maybe. The dog that's leaving little bombs in your yard, what if instead of kicking the dog or getting angry at the dog or fussing at the neighbor, what if instead you grabbed a shovel and went in his yard and cleaned up his yard for him? Instead of seeking revenge, you now are blessing him. You're now applying blessing to this person who's outside the church, so to speak. We're called to bless those who mistreat us. We're called to bless those. That's our calling, verse 9, to be a blessing. This requires action. This isn't non-action. This isn't just withholding. This is actually doing something. And the reality is, Athens should be a better place because of the church. Our function, our job within 
this community is to be a blessing to those around us. It's, it's not enough to just not be a jerk. We're called to actually be a blessing. To do something for him or for them. What if that coworker that that keeps jabbing you in the back or that keeps talking about you under their breath or behind your back or to your boss, what if you bring them a cup of coffee one morning? What if you what if you take that difficult person out to lunch? What if you find a way to be a blessing to those who are actually reviling you and and doing being evil to you we're called to a life of blessing and that's his quote from psalm 34 which we just read a few minutes ago where where god's people are seeking the good life they're seeking the blessed life and Peter is using this psalm to remind us that the key to the blessed life is actually through a blessing life. We should seek not the blessed life, but to live a blessing life. And that's the the key to our own blessing. Peter's not suggesting we can earn our salvation. We've already seen that he's talking to believers. He's talking to people, elect exiles, to use his language from verse 1 of chapter 1. He's writing to Christians. And so we're not, we're not using this blessing as a means of gaining God's favor. But now that we have God's favor... We are seeking to bless those around us. Maybe we should rather than seek the blessed life. Maybe we should seek the blessing life. And so he cites this psalm that points us. To our own blessing by living a life of blessing. The pathway to the blessed life is down the road of living a life of blessing to others. That is the cross-shaped life. That is the cruciform life. That's the life that Jesus lived. A life he didn't need in and of himself. The second person of the Trinity didn't need flesh. We needed him in the flesh. The second person of the Trinity didn't need to suffer and bleed and die for himself. He was perfectly complete as he was. We needed him to suffer and bleed and die. And so he sought to live the blessing life for which we bless Him. Right? Even at the cross, Jesus could have gotten down. Even even standing there with Pilate, He could have called down angels to, to destroy Pilate, to the Jewish leaders, the Roman authority. He could have destroyed Rome. He could have put an end to it right then and there. 
But he endured, lived, fulfilled, satisfied the cruciform life because that's exactly what we needed. We needed him, as Isaiah describes him, as a lamb led to the slaughter who didn't open his mouth. Stripped, beaten, spat on, mocked, jeered at, nailed to a cross, watching while people down there are casting lots for his clothes. We're the beneficiaries of that cross-shaped life, death, burial, and resurrection. We're the recipients of, of that blessing. We who at one time reviled him. We who at one time were his enemies. We who at one time were opposed to God and to, to Christ, opposed to the gospel. Paul writes, while we were still sinners, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, the godly for the ungodly. We didn't earn his death. We didn't earn that salvation. He gave it to people who did evil and reviled Christ himself. He didn't repay evil with evil. He didn't revile those who were reviling him. All for the point the aim, the intent of accomplishing our salvation. The reality is, apart from Christ, you can't live the blessing life. Apart from knowing that grace, apart from knowing that blessing of salvation by grace alone, we can't love brothers and sisters who aren't like us. And we will certainly not like people out there who don't like us. May God grant us the grace to love as He has loved, to bless those who curse us, and to exalt Christ in our lives. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the grace that is found in Christ and Him alone, for a salvation that's earned not by our obedience, but by His for a salvation that comes to us by your grace and not through our own merit, our own righteousness. And we thank you that you didn't repay evil with evil or revile those who reviled you. And Lord Jesus, that you went to the cross like a lamb led to the slaughter who didn't even open his mouth in objection. Who could have brought an end to it all. We thank you for your obedience to the Father, your willingness to accomplish our salvation, and we pray that you would use that grace to conform us more and more into your image, that we would grow in our love for one another, for people who aren't like us, and that we would love those outside the church who don't like us. All to the honor and glory of Christ our Savior, we pray. Amen.